What is shaking, everybody? It is a new Wind Up podcast, as usual. I am your host, Mike of MTGA Wines. We have a litany, a cacophony, a plethora, nay, a cornucopia of things that we are going to be getting into this fall season and pretty much every episode here until the end of October, even into November. It's harvest. We are officially a full week into bringing grapes into the winery. There are all kinds of things to dive into in terms of the little kind of geeky details. And that's really where we are going to start with this episode, the first episode of the Wind Up podcast during a Napa grape harvest. So we're going to have all kinds of fun things to get into. Before we dive in, I have a couple of quick announcements as far as the show goes. As usual, thank you for continuing to share, like, and subscribe. Uh, please continue sharing the podcast. If there are people that you think would be interested in it, sharing the episodes goes a long way in terms of helping with the algorithm and letting other wine folk uh, find this show. So it's really, really great anytime you guys share it. Uh, number two, next week, following this episode, is our September question and answer episode. If there are any burning questions that you want to have answered regard the wine industry, hospitality industry, winemaking, please make sure you get those submitted. Uh, you can do that in the comment section of the video on YouTube. You can go to the social network formerly known as Twitter uh, and hit us up there. You can go to Instagram. Those are really the best ways to get a hold of us. Uh, if you have a little bit of extra time, you can head to our website, mtgawines.com. Scroll down to the bottom. There's a little form you can fill out, and that'll submit questions directly to my inbox. Uh, that way, we can start diving in and putting that all together. I'm likely going to be recording that episode on um, next or this coming Monday, maybe Tuesday. So you got a couple of days to kind of get your thoughts in order, but make, please make sure that you submit those questions a little sooner rather than later uh, so that I can have them all prepped and ready to rock and roll. Number three, if you're on our mailing list or in our wine club, please keep an eye out. Uh, we're going to have a release notice coming out in the next week or two. Uh, so if you're not on any of those lists, same thing. You can head to our website, mtjwines.com. You can find all the details there to sign up for our mailing list or for our wine club and allocation list. Uh, that'll all be coming out. We have new vintages of our Merlot, our Red Blend, as well as our Napa Cabernet. Those are all getting released it's shoot gosh it's going to be like september 28th it's less than two weeks away uh, that's going to be happening so if you need a little bit more wine for the fall and the holiday season you can jump on board number four and last but certainly not least i promise this is the last little bit of shameless self-promotion uh, we are starting to put together holiday gifting orders for those of you that have clients employees friends family who are into wine that you want to give the gift of great wine to Please let us know. Again, you can go to our website, mtgawines.com, uh, order wine as you see fit, or scroll down to the bottom, fill out that form, get in touch with us directly. We can always customize things, include uh, gift notes and all kinds of all that good stuff. But it's better to do it now in September and have it lined up for Thanksgiving, uh, you know, Festivus, Hanukkah, Christmas, whatever you're celebrating. We got you covered, so we'll make sure that we get some wine out your way as needed. Please remember that you need to be 21 years or older to order, and an adult needs to sign for it when it's delivered. Fun little disclaimer, always the good stuff. So, all right, enough of that nonsense. We are right at the beginning of the 2023 harvest season, and I'll tell you, I'm already, I already know full well I'm not in harvest shape. 
this is where we are seven days in ah, a little bit more than that and the first like you get through that first couple of days it's you're sore as if you just went to the gym for the first time in like 10 years the first time it's like you're just lethargic you're tired you can't move quite you're not quite as limber it's tough it's hard physical labor and you're just thrown right into the fire of things and i'm going to tell you all about those little details and kind of the stuff that leads up to us deciding when we're going to be picking grapes now we talk a little bit about this in some of our tasting note videos. I've probably touched on it here and there uh, over the course of this year as well. But this is where we're really going to get into like the nitty gritty, what us winemakers do on a day to day basis during this time of year. Uh, for the foreseeable future, even though we typically have kind of themes to our episodes, whether it's the question and answer series that we do at the end of the month, more of the wine education stuff we do at the beginning, I'm going to try and provide at least like 10 minutes of just like here's your harvest update for the week that way you have some real insight into what's going on on basically a day-to-day -day or at least a week-to-week -week basis of what we're going through kind of boots on the ground just what we're working through during this time of year this will be a little bit of that longer update as we kind of built into the harvest season and what we're doing now to progress into the latter part of the season as the next few weeks go on I'm so excited. I'm out of breath talking about it already. No joke. All right. One deep breath and then we're going to get into it, right? One, two. All right. That's better. I got to remember to like talk slower sometimes because I get excited and then it feels like I can't breathe because I just get excited. It's kind of hilarious in my own mind. Anyway, so as we're leading into the harvest season, this was mid-August. So, you know, about a month ago. The shot kind of comes across the bow because you start to see the sparkling wine producers bringing in their wines. And you know, at that point, they harvest really, really early, but it's about a three or four week heads up to say, hey, you probably are gonna have grapes coming in soon too. So that's always kind of the first shot across the bow of, hey, the harvest season is coming. You best be ready to knock it out. That's truth be told, that's kind of our number, or at least it's for me, my kind of number one gauge in Northern California, like, okay, if the sparkling wine producers, your Domaine Chandons, Mums, whatever the case may be, start harvest, that means you're next. It's going to happen, whether you like it or not. So when that happens, we do a few things. Number one, we start hitting up our growers and we start really getting ready to just logistically handle the grapes coming in. We talked, it's still our least popular episode ever, which I understand why. It was all about the logistics of the wine industry. It's not the most fun stuff to talk about, but this is when it really starts coming into play. You got to organize trucking for your grapes. You're getting barrels delivered. You need all your yeast and cellar supplies. You need to make sure that all your equipment works. All kinds of stuff have to go into letting this harvest go off without a hitch. And believe me, no matter how hard you try, there is always a hitch. So as much as that logistics episode was probably boring as shit, it was outrageously important for how we can actually achieve success through a harvest season. Because if we don't do that stuff, we are going to be caught with our hands behind our back, fruit on the deck, and nothing that we can do about it. So we start getting in touch with all of our growers. We start checking in on the vineyards that we know are going to come early. Very, very typically, there is kind of a nice order and flow to a harvest season. This isn't always the case. As usual in wine, there are always exceptions. 
but typically you're kind of your lighter varieties your white wines come in first maybe followed by your stuff for rosé those might be coming in at about the same time your lighter reds start coming in next and then your bigger bolder reds come in last for example the first lot that we brought in was our Pinot Gris for some of our white wine. The next lot was some Grenache for uh, Brittany, the one and only HBIC. Her rosé came in next. She has some more Grenache coming in for her red wine. And after that, we're going to get into Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon as the weeks go on and progress. And luckily, with a very mild, kind of very temperate year for us, it's been very cool after a very wet and rainy uh, winter and spring there's going to be this nice, long, elongated harvest season. For us, it means we're probably going to be working extra long hours for an extra amount of time. But to be completely honest, I would rather have that. And I think many, many winemakers after last year and the last kind of historically what's happened in the last six years, we're all kind of down for just like, hey, let's just ease into this. We don't need to be in a hurry. We can just cruise along. Let's just do the thing. We can pick the grapes whenever we damn well please instead of having Mother Nature throw us a mean curveball. And that's the way it's lining up. It's lining up like we're going to be able to start with our whites, jump into our light reds and rosés, into our medium-bodied reds, and into our bold reds just as the weeks progress. This is knock on wood somewhere. This vintage is shaping up to be a potential like vintage of the decade vintage of the century kind of thing like that's how great this growing season has been it's kind of like i mean i hope i didn't jinx it it's a little bit like a pitcher going for a perfect game you don't want to talk to them you don't want to say it you just gotta let's let them do it let them work it's fine everything's fine so we'll see We'll see. If the rain starts coming in in mid-October, we know that after I said that, that's my bad. I'll have to apologize to the entire county. We'll get over it. It'll be fine. But this is where, you know, with this nice organization and bringing in our Pinot Gris at the beginning of last week, it allowed us to go through all the equipment, dust it off, make sure it works, repair a few things, clean a few things. Uh, it's basically a couple of full days, a few full days of just going through everything at the winery between pumps, hoses, the press, the sorting line, uh, the forklift, all these pieces of equipment that you need to have running in tip-top form to be able to do what you do efficiently. Now, many of you have been to the property where I make wine. It's one of the least efficient properties in Napa just because of the logistics that surround, you know, where the winery is versus where the caves are, how we are able or not able to transport wine to and from those locations. It's not particularly easy. So, and many, many facilities and many properties have those quirks about them. Once you've been working in around those facilities, you know full well how to kind of alleviate some of that pressure. For example, the biggest thing we deal with every year is just transporting wine from the winery to the caves. It's, you know, maybe 100, 150 yards. We do not have a flatbed. We have a tractor and a trailer to pull some wine, and we have a forklift to move some barrels. It takes about a seven or so minute round trip on the forklift to probably get up there and back. That's probably being generous. It's probably more like 10 or 15 minutes. If you're using the tractor and trailer and you're moving kind of larger volumes of wine using a portable tank, you gotta get all that, you gotta get that tank filled. Then you have to move it all the way up there. Then you have to drain that tank into barrels and then you have to come back down and rinse and repeat. 
that is probably the most time consuming thing that we have is sheerly just transporting stuff around the property. So we have to make sure that in both locations, we got all the equipment we need. We got to make sure that all those vehicles are ready to rock and roll and just be ready. You know, it's, it's the what preparation and preparedness equals success or whatever that cliche is. That's basically what we go for, you know, in mid August as we're leading into grapes coming in. Now, that's not exactly the most fun part because you're just a janitor and you're a mechanic for basically a couple of weeks. You're cleaning things, you're putting things together, you're repairing things. It's just kind of a chore. Uh, speaking of which, if you want to see some of those chores basically live, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm posting, uh, or any of our social networks for that matter, between Instagram, uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter, and YouTube, uh, we're posting videos regularly of just the day-to-day -day operations. They're like 30-second clips, really quick, easy to digest. Uh, so if you really want to see what winemaking is all about, I'm every other day I'm trying to post a video of kind of what's going on and what we're doing. So it'll be a great way for you to kind of see exactly what we're going through and not just have to hear me talk about it. Uh, as if you're into social media at all, or just, you know, especially on a more educational basis and not just doom scrolling through Instagram at the end of the day, this will be a great way to learn a little bit more about what we actually go through as winemakers uh, from a day-to-day -day standpoint. So leading into the first great pick, and this is, you know, you have everything cleaned, everything's ready to rock and roll, all your barrels are ready. You're just, you're waiting to pull the trigger. And I'll give you a little insight into how this was going down for us. Uh, one week before uh, the grapes were going to be coming in, we started you know, keeping in contact with our grower. I drive out there a couple of times a week, three times a week to check on the grapes and make sure that the numbers they're sending me kind of make sense. Now, this is what I love about some of the grape growers that I work with is that they'll go out, they'll pull cluster samples, uh, they'll crush them up, they'll send me lab reports of kind of what the chemistry is and what's kind of going on within that vineyard. It's, it's a huge resource because it allows me to have at least some sort of gauge without having to drive incessantly back and forth between all these different properties. But the A number one most important thing is that that chemistry panel is only about half the information because you got to get out there and you need to taste some grapes and you need to see where that vineyard is actually at physiologically. You can't just trust the numbers because there's all kinds of other things at play that you need to take into account if you're going to make great wine. That is non-negotiable, bar none. You're not going to convince me otherwise. You cannot rely solely on the chemistry panels. I've seen wines that have what you would consider to be perfect numbers that are terrible absolutely terrible so you got to take those with a grain of salt they might provide half the information you really need and what we decided and this is kind of just that little bit of a back and forth between the winemaker and the grower relationship is we decided hey the numbers are still probably within this good range I go out there, I taste the fruit, I, you know, and tasting it and looking at it, it could use a little bit more time. So I'm like, okay, let's wait till the end of this week. I'll come back out, check the vineyard again, and let's go ahead and schedule the pick for this Monday, just so that we have a crew on the books and ready to go. They say, great, that sounds awesome. We'll wait that. That should be plenty of time to get it ripe and where we really want it. And we'll go from there. 
So I go back out, I confirm everything a few days later. And then of course the next day, Saturday, he goes out, resamples everything. He gets very similar numbers that he's been sending me. I mean, almost identical, which is a little weird. You expect some sort of development within the chemistry uh, outside of just what the flavors and look of the grapes are. And there was basically no change. And at that point, I'm like, okay, I have to go back out again the day before just to confirm everything because he wanted to push it back a whole nother week. And I was basically of the opinion, I was like, hey, I really loved where it was a week ago. I already pushed it back once because I thought it, this would put it and keep it within this really nice range. I don't know if I'm comfortable pushing it back another week because quite frankly, I don't think it needs it. And I really love where this fruit is now. So I drive back out, walk through the vineyard, check the grapes. And then it was, you could tell, you know, as much as you can tell via text that he's like, I really wanna push this back. I don't wanna have to do this pick tonight and tomorrow morning. And I basically threw a wrench in that. I was like, nope, we're picking tomorrow. All the logistics are set up. Grapes are coming in. We're making wine starting Monday morning. I don't know how happy he was about that, but I was very happy about it because I got my way, to be completely honest. So as you start deciding when you're going to pick grapes, there is this little bit of back and forth. The growers tend to believe that they know what's best for the vineyard and when that fruit should come in or should not come in. It's us. It's up to us as the winemakers to be like, hey, this is the style of wine that I'm looking for. And if I pick when you say so, I'm not going to get that. It's And it, it that probably makes it sound like there's a little bit more friction than there really is. It's just, it's more of a dialogue. And I know that these farmers, you know, they want their produce to come in at the highest quality that they think it is so they so that we can make great wine. It's just up to us to double check their work. It's really that simple. There have been a couple of times in my tenure as a winemaker that it's not, there've been an issue and you're on a phone call at three o'clock in the morning trying to iron out logistics and do stuff. And it's just not the most fun, but in the heat of the moment, it just kind of is what it is. You're all exhausted. You're, you all are, you know, worn thin because of the amount of work you're doing and you just have to try and do the best you can with what you got. So it's kind of the all is fair and love and war kind of situation where we, we, we get along just fine after the fact, but there will be those slightly touch and go moments where like, Hey, I'm buying these grapes. I'm the one dictating when they're coming in. Don't try and push me around. This is what I need. And if you're not going to give it to me now, we have a problem, right? And no one wants to deal with that problem because that's when like lawyers and stuff get involved and we don't have time for that nonsense. It's just way too much. I know that some of you out there work in, in the law realm, appreciate you for what you do. We're gentlemen farmers. We don't know what you're talking about half the time. We just want to buy grapes and make wine. Why does it have to be so complicated? Why, why, why get the lawyers involved when you can just figure it out? No need, no need to, to complicate things. I love you guys. I mean it. Hmm. <laughs> so after that little bit of back and forth, We've got trucking organized. The grapes showed up at about 11 o'clock in the morning at the winery on Monday. Um, I'm out there by about six o'clock getting things cleaned up, getting the press ready, uh, making sure that all the barrels that I have are ready to go, making sure the stainless steel tank that I need is all ready to go. Again, you're kind of that janitor for the first part of the day. Luckily enough with your white wines, at least as far as how we make them, as well as our rosé for that matter, uh, under the Blair Payton label, it's just directly into the press. We squeeze all that fresh juice out of the grapes. Uh, we, we remove all the skins, the seeds, the stems. Those go to compost. 
and we just have this nice raw grape juice. It basically looks like raw apple juice. If you've ever seen that, it's kind of that like golden, like cloudy color. And that's what we're working with. All that will eventually make its way. Uh, for us, we do our white wines and rosés just all barrel fermented uh, in small batches. So we will have anywhere from like four to eight barrels of some of these things. And we just line those up in the cellar. I come back that evening and add a little bit of yeast and some nutrients to help kind of get that yeast going and make sure that's healthy for that fermentation process. And then we let her rip. And at this stage, we've had our Pinot Gris, our white wine, fermenting uh, for about, what, 13 days? No, sorry, 10 days at this point. 10 days at this stage. It'll be wrapping up that fermentation and basically be done within the next week or so. The, the bubbling will stop. Um, we'll start to kind of top up those barrels and fill them up to make sure that they're uh, solid. There's not too much headspace in them. And the aging process begins. Uh, by the time early December rolls around, or even closer to uh, November, if we can swing it, uh, we'll rack those wines uh, throughout this fermentation process that occurs. Some of you may know this. Uh, there is some sediment that forms at the bottom of the bottle, or sorry, bottom of the barrel. And it's, it's basically like a very fine silt. It's everything from the yeast that's in there. It's kind of the broken down grape skins and seeds and maybe some like particulates that got in there. It sinks to the bottom and it's just easy enough to remove. We can pump the wine out of the barrel, leave that at the bottom and just rinse it out and we're done. Uh, that's going to happen a ways down the road, but that's kind of what's you know in the back of my mind right now, knowing that this fermentation is going to wrap up in the next week or so, that, hey, I'm going to try and put these barrels to bed. And then this is added to the to-do list right as all the red wines really start coming in. So that's when it really starts to kind of snowball on you is when you have just all of these operations kind of like happening at once. And that's basically where we're at at this stage is we've kind of tested the waters and got our white wine and rosé program going. It's going to be at least another week, up to two weeks, before we start seeing our reds really start to roll in. The reality is that by the end of this month, we'll probably only be about one-third through our harvest, and those final two-thirds are pretty much going to come in all at once. It's going to be Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Cabernet Franc. Those big three take up the bulk of our overall production, and the Merlot comes in basically one week. The Cab is like a week, week and a half after that. And the Cab Franc's roughly somewhere in the middle there. So it's just going to be a barrage, an absolute barrage of work that comes down the line. No harm, no foul. We signed up for this gig. And them is the ropes. This is how it really goes down. At least it's nice and kind of metered out this year rather than happening all at once. 2018 was one of those years where basically everything came in in like three days. I didn't sleep for a while. It was such a pain in the butt. It was a lot of fun, but so trying, <clears throat> excuse me, because it was just, it didn't have this nice kind of even pace that we kind of typically expect. Now, as our barrels are fermenting, there are a handful of things that we do to kind of just check up on the kids and make sure that things are going the way they should be. Number one, we do want to check on the progress of that fermentation. So it's as easy as pulling a sample out of that barrel, uh, filling up a graduated cylinder with some of the juice and throwing in a hydrometer that in essence tests the specific gravity uh, of the juice. And it will give me basically the percentage of sugar that's still remaining. Uh, in the next few days, uh, we'll see those hydrometers go into the negative range, which basically means it's eaten that yeast has eaten up 
any and all sugar that it can. And now that fermentation is going to start slowing down. Uh, very typically, this happens at slightly different rates for barrel fermentations. You're going to have a couple that finish pretty quick. You're going to have some that are kind of that average, and you're going to have some that probably lag behind a little bit. You always pay attention to the ones that start lagging behind because you don't want them to get stuck. This is part of that babysitting that we have to do as a winemaker is you just have to make sure that the kids are playing nice. You know, no one's swinging a stick around. I'm going to catch somebody and crack them in the back of the head. And stuck fermentations, I've had to deal with a couple of them. They're not fun because that's when the chemistry really starts to take over. And you people know that I failed college chemistry twice. I don't have time for that kind of nonsense. So you know what? We got to make sure that these things stay healthy and those fermentations are cruising right along the way we want them to be. So one, we're checking on the progress of that fermentation to make sure it's actually progressing. As long as that sugar level keeps ticking down, we know that the yeast is doing its job. Number two, and probably most importantly, is I am pulling that same sample and I'm putting it into a glass, I'm giving it a swirl, I'm smelling it, and I'm tasting it. There are a handful of things that can go wrong during a fermentation that you just want to keep an eye on. This is probably, and I would argue by far, the most volatile time in a wine's life. There are a lot of things at play that are in your control and that can easily get out of your control if you just miss the boat on something. The joy of having a handful of barrels going through fermentation or like a tank or a couple of bins where you're doing kind of open top fermentations, it's pretty easy to taste through those in pretty rapid time and just not have to worry about it. It's the joy of being as small as we are is that we can really quality control things. I mean, what's even great for some of the big producers is that if you're making these giant lots, you're using tanks that are 10,000 gallons, 20,000 gallons. You're using these massive and far bigger than that, to be honest. And you're using these massive vessels. And it's not too hard to go around the cellar and just taste through them real quick to make sure they're where you want to be. Your team is typically also trained to be like, hey, this smells funky. We need to you know, run, run a panel on this and see what's going on. Um, it could be a simple thing like it's a little bit reductive. There could be some hydrogen uh, uh, sulfides, H2S, uh, that are occurring, which can provide kind of that funky or really, really bad like rotten egg smell. Uh, you could have some aldehydes forming. This has happened a couple of times in our white wines, which is just a oxidative property of alcohol, basically. Uh, there's all kinds of like little things that you just need to kind of keep track on. It is certainly where the chemistry starts to kind of take over a little bit and be the leader. But you really still have to rely on your taste buds and what you're smelling to be able to discern whether or not this wine is actually going where you want it to go. One really fun thing that I try and do every harvest is I try to experiment at least a little bit. I try and keep quite a few variables consistent from the types of yeast that we use, the varieties that we use, our fermentation techniques, what eventually we do uh, for the aging program. There's a lot that I do to keep things consistent. However, there are always a couple of lots that I try and toy with every year. Uh, for the last few years, it's been our Cabernet Sauvignon. Our Cabernet Sauvignon program is still relatively new. Um, we really didn't start making it in any significant volume until 2017. So it's been six years of like, okay, let's start small. We'll build into it. 2020 was kind of the first, I guess, big year for us. Uh, we made all of like 70 cases of it, but still it was three times the amount we normally would. And since then, we've had a little bit more Cabernet to play with. So as a part of that, 
we've played with a couple of different yeast strains. We've played with some different barrel selections to kind of figure out what is going to be best for this wine from this vineyard in the long term. And actually, as it turns out, since we have brought in our Pinot Gris and it's going through fermentation right now, that's exactly what we did with our white wine program. At this moment, we have two brand new barrels that are in the works for our white wines. And this is, this is something that I love doing kind of in the shadows of the cellar. I mean, it's literally right out in the open, but unless I bring it up, no one would ever know the difference. And it's just, I mean, very typically, I'll give you a little background on our, on our white wine program, is that typically it's mostly stainless steel with some neutral oak. It has flipped a little bit to mostly neutral oak. And by what I mean by neutral oak are barrels that have been used uh, quite a few times. So they're not really providing any additional flavors or complexities. Uh, but those used barrels still serve as great containers for aging wine or just storing wine. So we love having some used barrels around the cellar just for whatever we need them for, right? From there, you know, we wanted to see, you know what, what if we were to throw some new oak at this white wine and play with it a little bit? So this last winter, I ordered a acacia barrel, acacia wood, not oak barrel, some acacia, as well as a French oak barrel to try and see how these two would really play off of one another with this white wine. Uh, so those are that is included in our barrel fermentations. We have wine uh, in both of those barrels uh, going through that fermentation process right now. What, what I've really been able to gather from the acacia barrel is that it tends to add kind of these nice kind of honey notes to the wine, honey, honeysuckle, kind of blossomy kind of notes to the wine, where the French oak barrel is adding a little bit more spice, a little bit more intensity to the wine. Uh, they are still very much going through fermentation. It's still going to be a little bit of time before these barrels really start to take hold and show what they're really going to provide. But right now where they're at, this has been an amazing barrel trial to see, one, if we want to use one of these barrels in the future or even both of them just for added complexity and intensity in our white wine program. So even, you know, it's not just big Napa Cabernet and red blends that we toy with and really try and make as good as we can. You know, we're not just out here slinging white wine because, you know, we feel like it. Even these small lots where white wines, I mean, very typically tend to be that cash flow wine in a wine program. There's something that are made at a quicker clip than your big reds. So you can have them out and start selling them long before your reds are typically ready. That's why we call them Chateau Cash Flow, baby. <laughs> you know, it's you still want to try every year to get a little bit better at what you do. And it's really, really nice and very, very advantageous to tinker ever so slightly. And that is just the, that's where truthfully I find probably the most joy in the cellar now 14 years into this is I know the wines that I want to make that are going to line it up to knock it down, that are going to be our great staples, that are going to be our flagships, insert important, you know, to the program verbiage here kind of message, right? And I know those sections that I feel as though we could probably touch this up a little bit. We can probably play with this just a little bit and see where we really want this to go. It is something that I am very, very excited for uh, moving into the future of our white wine program. Uh, it might surprise you how excited you know we might be about our white wines compared to some of our big reds because the big reds are obviously our bread and butter. It's what we do. It's what we're known for. But these white wines, man, I'll tell you what, there's a reason why folks come out to nap and they say, you know what? We love big reds, but the white wines are awesome. We're like, 
Yeah, because not only are we trying to make these amazing big reds, we're trying to make kick-ass white wines at the same time. So this is something that I, I thoroughly believe in, and many, many winemakers will do this, whether it's different harvest techniques, uh, whether it's different fermentation techniques, barrel aging. All of us tinker a little bit with these different trials just to see if it's something that we can incorporate into our program and not overhaul or change it, but enhance it. That's kind of the big thing in winemaking every harvest for me is that you want to try and get a little bit better at what you do. That could mean that you, you're cleaning up for the day and you find a way to coil the hose more efficiently so that it's easier to use the next day. Or you find a different barrel that you use that you really incorporates well into your program and adds just a layer of complexity to your wine that you didn't think was possible. There are so many different little things and even big things that you can do to just get better at what you do every day. And that is something that we all in this industry really try and maintain. At least those of people that are in my peer group take that mentality. Many of the people that I talk to take that mentality. We all know folks in our respective industries that don't do that and they're good on cruise control and they more power to you as long as you're comfortable, right? So in the coming weeks, we're going to continue those vineyard visits that I talked about. We're going to continue scheduling picks. Uh, it's a lot more cleaning, a lot more janitorial services in the cellar. Uh, it's going to be a lot more of everything that we've gone through uh, in this episode. It just kind of continues to rinse and repeat. More or less, when your first couple of lots come in, you're at seven days a week, roughly 10 to 12 hours a day. You're just going, going, going as soon as your first couple of batches of fruit come in. When it's a little bit more of a mellow year like this year has been, it's not quite that yet. It's going to be, and actually it'll be in a couple of days on Friday, if you're listening to this, on uh, September 20th, this is the 18th as I'm recording this actually, uh, if you're listening to this on September 20th when it's released, in two days, we're bringing in some more red wine. And that means that we're doing open top, small batch fermentations with punch downs every 12 hours, basically at six or seven in the morning, six or seven at night. So you know you got your bookends to the day and now you got a whole bunch of other stuff that you got to knock out as well. Uh, speaking of like that wine club release and all that other stuff uh, that we were talking about early, early on. So, you know, that's when it really starts to ramp up. Your white wines typically are a nice wine, nice way to kind of get into harvest shape. And then once the reds start coming in, that's when it starts snowballing. When our Merlot comes in, that's kind of like the, all right, the big game is here. It's all happening and we got to get after it. And by the time Cabernet starts rolling in, you're just in the weeds, in the weeds. But we love it. We absolutely love it. Uh, it's an industry and a profession that I don't wish on anybody, but damn it, it is a lot of fun. If you have the wherewithal and you love getting your hands dirty. My hands, I mean, they're actually, you'll see them as the season goes on. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're going to see I have the harvest beard in effect. This thing is not going to get touched at all, uh, probably until the end of November. Uh, and the hands are just going to get more and more torn up and purple as the weeks go on. So if you really want to see the effects of you know, harvest on a winemaker, tune into the YouTube video side of things and check in on me every once in a while. I typically lose about 10 pounds during harvest as well. Uh, it's kind of crazy. I did my official weigh in uh, before the first set of grapes come in. So I know where I'm at. Uh, it's kind of a little friendly competition uh, that some of us winemakers have. It's like, how crazy was your harvest? You lost how much weight? Oddly enough, the crazy things that we do. Like the only other weird tradition that I have, and I guess it's not that weird. The, the weigh-in is always kind of funny. 
because it you just you don't have time to eat you stop eating healthy it's a lot of like just protein bars and beer and whiskey that kind of keep you going so you're it's it's a little crazy you definitely lose a few lbs throughout the harvest season but actually speaking of beer and whiskey my like number one thing that i do is the day before grapes come in I go to the store, I buy a 30 rack of Coors Banquet beer because those silver bullets are trash. It's all about the rusty bullets, let's be honest. And number two, I grab a bottle of bourbon and those are just stashed in the fridge at the winery for whatever we need them for. Uh, Because at a certain point during those long days, you're on hour 13, you're exhausted, you're sitting down for a minute, you just need some carbs and a little bit of alcohol to like uh, take a load off. And then spend two additional hours cleaning them up the mess that you just made from that day processing fruit. It's a great way to form bonds with your fellow, your fellow winemakers and uh, people that are working within the industry. It's, it's a special, it's a special time is when you get to hang out at the end of the day and enjoy just one cold one to kind of commiserate about how crazy we all have to be to do what we do. So That is the start of Harvest, everybody. I appreciate you tuning in to this episode. Uh, Thank you again, as always. Uh, Be sure to share, like, subscribe, do all the things. Uh, It's been still just an immense amount of fun getting all this out into the airwaves. So please continue to do what you do best in uh, supporting it. It means the world. It's just been an outrageous amount of fun getting these episodes all posted up. Remember to submit your questions for next week's Q&A. Uh, please do so uh, by the weekend if you can, so I can start kind of queuing them up and getting my mind right around what I want my answers to be and what direction we're going ahead. And then, yeah, next week, a week from when this is released, so we're looking at September 27th, we'll be doing that September question and answer. The first week of October much like the hospitality shenanigans episode that we did about kind of the craziness that can happen just in the hospitality industry, we're going to get into the wine making shenanigans. We're going to do a whole episode of just crazy wine making stories that I can pull out of a hat from uh, myself. Also, friends and colleagues are just about the insane things that we go through and just the trials and tribulations uh, of all the grunt work that goes into getting a wine from grape just into barrels, much less bottles. All right, so have an amazing rest of the week. We will see you next week. Take care, have a great glass of wine tonight. And shoot, I was gonna like say something really profound and I totally had a brain fart. Anyway, have a good one.